What's the Buzz Without a Podcast? This podcast is for beekeepers from Atlantic Canada who want relevant, timely information about beekeeping in the region. We feature beekeepers and experts with specialist insights into our beekeeping and pollination industry. I'm Andrew Byers, your host for this episode, and today we're speaking with Andrew McFarlane. Andrew McFarlane is a PEI beekeeper. He keeps approximately 75 hives. Um, he's also the secretary treasurer of the Prince Edward Island Beekeepers Association and resides in the city of Charlottetown. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Dr. Byers. It's a pleasure to see and speak with you today. That's fine. It's my pleasure as well. Um, so I think just to, uh, to give us some idea of your background initially, so that the listeners understand uh, your, your beekeeping experiences, maybe we can start with, uh, with a little bit of that, if you'd be so kind. I would love to. So, you know, I started uniquely, I think, compared to a lot of other people. I, I was a child. My father used a paintbrush. And so I can't really say that we were beekeepers as much as we were being bees. And so here's a little five, six-year-old Andrew who would, I, I remember going out with my father. It was a red paintbrush. It had a big black fan on it. And it was always full of this yellow stuff. Didn't understand it. I was five or six. And we had a pumpkin patch that my father obviously wanted pumpkins that year. And every morning before work, he would go out and, and pollinate these pumpkins. And I guess I asked too many questions. I'm sure that I did. And uh, he didn't want to necessarily get into the birds and the bees with me at that young age. Um, but that was my foray into beekeeping as a, as a very young man. And then uh, I would say that I started beekeeping with my brother-in-law about oh, four or five years ago in Alberta, probably five years ago now. He had eight hives, and the thing that killed me about it was that they all died one winter, and we didn't know why. John is a commercial beekeeper from Ontario, married my sister and moved out west where we were living, and I knew nothing about how it happened. I mean, really less than nothing than even the average beekeeper at the time, but it killed my soul that they had all died. And it was then that I started to really research how to take care of bees and what it meant to be a beekeeper, going from just being, you know, a helper who would show up on the weekends and was fascinated to someone who keeps bees and, and cares enough about them to have the forethought into what, what you're doing. Interesting. I think, I think there's, there's some stuff there I'd like to delve into and, and unpack a little bit um, about your, your experience, especially as you sounds like you've been beekeeping in three areas across our country. So it'd be, it'd be quite interesting, I think, to our listeners to find out about the challenges faced in all three of those, those areas. Um, so as we, we begin this, we, we kind of like to start off once we, we get to know our guests and ask the question, can you tell us what's the funniest or oddest or strangest experience you've had with beekeeping? Well, God, my, God bless my wife, and I have permission to tell you this story about her. So we had in 2018, I purchased bees for the first time on PEI, and we purchased 50 hives um, down in Wolfville, Nova Scotia. Drove them all back um, because I was horrified by the situation of beekeeping and blueberry pollination on Prince Edward Island. So, you know, the fact that we truck 
bees across the country, et cetera, et cetera. But the funny story is that we bring back all these hives and wife was the reluctant beekeeper at best. Wasn't sure about bugs, wasn't sure about insects. Uh, you know, this was supposed to be my thing. So there we've unloaded them all and there's a whole other story to that, but we've unloaded them all and the next morning it's starting to rain and my wife is convinced that she doesn't need to have her bee suit on that she bought brand new the week before. So she's, you know, 20 feet in front of the hives. I'm there tending to them, but unknown to her, she's right in the flight path of one of these bees coming home who's done a orientation flight. And so Melissa has very long hair. She's short, only five foot two and always wears a big ballerina bun on the back of her head. Anyway, this beautiful bee, I'm sure, is coming in for her first landing, you know, coming back and ends up in my wife's bun. And uh, I don't know, uh, Dr. Byers, if you've ever had a bee in your hair, uh, but it was my wife's first experience with that. And so, of course, this little bee, uh, you know, dropped it into fifth gear, turned on the turbos and, and really cranked up the volume. And my wife is not a runner. But my wife boogied. I mean, she moved, man. She went from the bee yard out to the road. The bee was still in her hair from the road. She ran all the way up to her truck, through the truck, up to the house, through the house, back outside again. Anyway, I finally caught up to her and found the bee in the house, sitting on one of the lights in the ceiling, wondering how in God's name she had gotten so far away from her flight path. So that was one of our very first funny experiences. And she's since recovered from that and become an enthusiastic beekeeper herself. Well, it took a while. Yes. <laughs> yeah. My son, when he was very young, he's been an enthusiastic beekeeper since he was, I don't know, I think about four. At a very young age, we had a company come. And as you know, when beekeepers come visit beekeepers, the first thing you do is go down to the bee yard and we trooped down, the three of us, my friend, myself, my, my son, and, and he, we just walked over without hats on, which again, you know, most beekeepers know better, but he was young and he didn't have a hat on and a bee flew in and stung him on the head. And this was his first bee sting. And he, um, he took it very, very well. And we found the bee and we, we did what we could for him. And he was a little bit upset. And, and my friend and I continued to, to talk at the, at the apiary while my son went in the house and, about 10 minutes later, I heard all this wailing and crying in the house. And I'm thinking, what, what's going on there? And I walked in and once my son had gotten with his mother, the drama of the whole bee sting experience was amplified by about five times. And all of a sudden it was, it was the horrific event that I perhaps thought it would have been initially, but no, it wasn't until he got in with his mom that the true drama of it evolved. So yes, I think the, the take home message from both of those stories is put your hat on. I'd be interested if, if you could, Andrew, just to give us some, some insight into that experience, because it, it's a rare thing for someone to have beekeeping background from three distinct regions across Canada. And I'm sure the challenges presented by that were unique to each of those. Yes, you're not wrong at all. Um, Alberta, and specifically Southern Alberta, is very unique. When I went to Apamongia, I, I got to reconnect with some friends from Fort McLeod who are commercial beekeepers down there. And, you know, chatting about the wrapping of hives in the wintertime, PEI, you know, when I wrap my hives, it's with plastic and we fed them and I fill their feeder boxes. I put feeder boxes on top and I fill them with wood chips uh, to help with moisture, you know, and, and that's really, you wrap them, you leave them on the pallet. And, and for the most part, as long as you have shrew guard on there, you're, you're fine. 
Whereas in Alberta, they practically make handmade quilts to wrap these hives in. And so my experience specifically with being in Southern Alberta with these Chinook wind events that happen, a Chinook wind event to give your listeners some background is when warm air from British Columbia comes up over the Rockies and then crashes down on the easterly side into Southern Alberta. And when it does that, you can have the temperatures go up from, you know, minus 40 all the way up to plus 15 and usually for three or four days. And, and the clouds are very unique and they're beautiful um, that happens there for beekeeping. That's horrendous because the moisture becomes a problem. The waking up and the breaking of the cluster of the bees becomes a problem. And then uh, when the Chinook leaves and, and recedes back and the cold air backfills again, now they go from being very warm to very cold, very fast. And any beekeeper will tell you that it's the moisture that kills a hive. Well, you know, these poor girls have had a heck of a time getting rid of plus 15 degree moisture to have it drop back down again so quickly it is horrible. So when you see hives in Alberta wrapped, it's no joke. What my brother-in-law and I tried to do, we're, we're always big on, on science and listening to scientific people speak. So on his property um, in, in Didsbury, north of the city, uh, he had an old barn and ooh, probably 60, 70, maybe 80 years old, not very well built. So we weren't worried about carbon monoxide um, or carbon dioxide or moisture levels because wind would come in and out of this barn enough. But we had put our eight hives in there in an effort to keep them away from the sharp elements. Um, but I can tell you that most beekeepers went to them outside, they wrap them, they'll wrap them in plastic, then they'll put insulation over the hives, they'll drill out holes so the bees can come and go, they'll even put like paint stir sticks to hold things out at the bottom, wrap all that again in plastic. It, they're, they're these huge monstrosities of, of bee boxes that when you take them apart in the spring, look just like ours you know there's nothing unique about them so that's beekeeping in alberta uh moisture and extreme temperature swings are massive and like i say all eight of ours died in the barn and we had treated for mites we'd done everything that we thought have i think looking back on it they starved because winter is long winter is is cold and you need a lot of feed maybe we just didn't have enough Ontario was, was my brother-in-law, John, he put himself through college doing bees with his father. And so he had a lot of experience. I think it was much more akin to PEI since uh, my brother-in-law and sister moved back to Prince Edward Island. Um, it seems to be a lot easier for, for him. He looks at it and goes, oh, this is, you know, this is lovely beekeeping. You know, spring actually is spring and, and summer is summer and, and you can count on, uh, you know, a, a long winter that's more stable. Than, than when we get out west. So we, we find beekeeping in PEI more predictable, I think is, is the word, if you can say that, if you can use the word predictable with beekeeping, then you would get in Alberta where lots of times we would get six inches of snow in August or September. And you know, you're going, Jesus, is there anything for them to feed on now? Or do we have to blitz making sugar water as fast as you can to feed them in September when you would plan to feed in October, for example? So that, that's been my experience. Yeah, that variability in, in weather is what we're all up against as beekeepers. Is there um, a move in PEI uh, towards indoor overwintering? 
You know, they've talked about it at the association level. And because of my experience, I'm hesitant. When I was at Apomongia, I attended a number of the talks that individuals gave on indoor wintering. And I saw the pictures and the depth that they went into. Look, we had a, an old barn. Okay, I mean, you could see through in some spots right to the outside. There was no question that that it was well ventilated um, on of its own accord. These buildings that I've seen, and I want to say they were in Quebec, there were some out west, Manitoba. Um, they have incredible HVAC systems, you know, monitoring all sorts of air quality, um, moisture levels, and, and the emergency system pictures that I saw, you know, with the flashing red lights on the walls that would then just blow air right through to clean out carbon dioxide. And from what they had presented at Apomongia, I didn't see incredible uptick in winter survival rates enough for me personally to think that it was justifiable in spending the tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars on the HVAC. So I think that we could see it on PEI, but you know, what are they going to use an old potato barn? I've been in those, they are humid all, all winter. You know, you have that smell, that, that, that musty smell in them. Uh, I don't know that it doesn't breed bacteria. Personally, I would be hesitant to creep away from uh, our tried and true methods. Personally, I will tell you, and I know we haven't spoken about this before, but I'm leaning much more towards the Slovenian bee house than I am towards indoor wintering on pallets as such. Okay. Would you be happy to tell us a bit more about the Slovenian bee house approach? Yeah, sure. So it was something that John and I had looked at out west, to be honest with you, because uh, Slovenia has, uh, you know, similar to Canadian winters. Anton, and I can't pronounce his last name, it starts with a Z, had devised this um, bee house in the late 1800s. And there's old pictures of these, these uh, individuals with their homes. And it's even current now, they make Slovenian bee houses. It uses that Fibonacci sequence for the front of the bee house and you beekeep from the back. And so John and I, in speaking about this, thought, okay, so you could heat the inside of the house and you can try and control the swings that way. And because the hives open from the back where the whole back panel of the hive opens like a cupboard door, you can feed all winter as well. Uh, you can account for a lot of um, temperature swings and then you can insulate the very front of their hives, which is the outside wall. You can insulate that from wind and rain that would beat against it. And so to me, that seems more logical where the bees are self-regulating the, their HVAC system, if you can call it that, right? Where they're, they're able to suck in air from the bottom and, and redistribute it out the top, but we're able to keep the back end at a pretty constant temperature. And so that's what we've been looking at. And when I was speaking with the um, individuals from Laval University that made their presentation about uh, overwintering bee, uh, queen bee banks, I think that that would have uh, fared much better than their indoor wintering that they did because they did cite a lot of concerns with the heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. And I think that that would potentially help improve those, those items. And again, I mean, it's going back to history somebody did this without a computer you know they they tested all this without electronics uh they just did it based on what they observed and uh you know i like that kind of science now we can justify it but i like that somebody had tried something and said i don't know why it works it just works and so that's why i'm doing it 
Yes, a lot of the beekeeping traditions are the same, aren't they? We know they work and they have for years, but then then I, I think you're absolutely right. We don't take for granted that that's the best way forever. We, we still need to be uh, um, reflective in our practices and, and think about, okay, why does this work? Is there a better way to do it? What are the scales of these, these Slovenian style bee houses? Are they um, something that could be adapted for large commercial beekeeping? They were, and in, in fact, you know, you get back to justifying, it took me, going through Facebook and even some guys at Apomongia to realize why they use that Fibonacci sequence on the front of their hives. And honestly, it comes down to moisture. The Fibonacci sequence creates a vent in such a way that the bees can lower the moisture content of their honey and the moisture in their hives faster, which I just think is fantastic that they're using, I don't even know when Fibonacci existed. I mean, this is really old math. And then, you know, you're using a Slovenian bee house design over a hundred years old and nobody knew what it did. They just know that things happened. And so, yes, they even went to commercial. There's some old pictures, man, of big, these big houses. And then they would trailer these things, if you can believe it, and put them onto wagons and take them out to the fields to pollinate whatever they had to pollinate. They still do this today. And then bring them back and put them back into the wall. And to me, I think that's that's quite smart. You know, you uh, you look at people in Slovenia and Ukraine, and and they're they're older. You know, they're older beekeepers, and they're not lifting hives like we do here in North America, breaking our backs and and uh, you know getting these big hive cranes that move hives around. They're not doing that. They've developed over hundreds of years ways to pollinate without killing themselves. I think it's just super interesting to look into from a scientific point of view. Yeah, yeah, it would be. The, the Fibonacci sequence, Andrew, um, do you think you could explain that in a way that, that we can visualize it? Because I'm struggling a little bit to, to kind of put a picture in my head of what that might look like. So most homes, you're used to that triangular shaped roof. And what this Fibonacci sequence did is it's almost like a fiddlehead. You know the, the fiddlehead that grows in your garden? or even a fiddlehead that's on an actual fiddle, where it does this turn up at the top. And so they have a long overhang and it, it comes out in front of the bees. And I always thought, foolish me, uh, that it was to do with weather. I figured that they moved the whole roof forward like three feet, and that was to prevent wind and rain and stuff from pelting against the front of the hives and, and disrupting you know, your poor bees uh, through all four seasons. It was only when I started asking guys like, what? you all have the same roof and I don't speak Slovenian. Uh, some of them had broken English. Uh, some of them, God bless the texting translation that we have on our cell phones nowadays, because that was able to translate for me. Um, but why, why would you do that? I mean, you've all done it the same way and no one, no one messes around with that. They're very, they're very identifiable from that, that curve that, that you get on the roof and the overhang and, and how it all is placed. And they said, well, yeah, that's what it is. That's how you know it's a Slovenian bee house. And then come to find out to ask what the math was because you've obviously got carpenters. So send me the specs and they're all in millimeters and centimeters, not in inches like we're used to. And so long story short, someone in the US who was in on these conversations went, well, that's a, that, that's a Fibonacci sequence. Okay, didn't mean anything to me. I didn't understand what that meant. And they said, this is really old math. And then you come to ask, why do you do it this way? And why don't you put them in the fields? Like we have them in fields in, in North America and, and most of Europe, and why is this being done? 
to then have them come out and say, well, because of that sequence and because of how the airflow happens, the airflow turns in the top of that fiddlehead and sucks moisture out of the hive. Okay, that's news to me. And then hearing about how they have uh, moisture contents in their honey that are incredibly low, you know, 15, 16% uh, easy. And they swear that by doing that, they overwinter better because their hives are drier. And that was what piqued my interest. Having drier hives in Atlantic Canada, where we don't have to worry about moisture killing our bees. Interesting. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to see if we can find a good uh, picture, Andrew, to to put on for uh, for people that are listening, so they can see what this these beehives look like. Um, so obviously there is challenges to to beekeeping now that you've you've moved to the maritime region, which are unique to to our area, and and you feel that that the moisture is one of those. Yes, I think so. I mean, I had never seen mold on inner covers. Um, until we came back to PEI, you know, I, I, I had left PEI years ago and, and we had never kept bees here and, you know, you know, it's moist, but I didn't think that it mattered um, really, you know, like not enough to matter. And um, I follow Paul Kelly's design for inner covers out of the University of Guelph. That was one of the um, research that I did after we lost those hives. As I mentioned previously, I, I watched a lot of videos and, and uh, started going to educational institutions, you know, like universities to hear what they had to say and uh, they use canvas and so I said okay you know what I'll try canvas it adds more propolis to the hives and it's supposed to help with moisture they do that in, in southern Ontario where I know it's moist like it is here in PEI let's give it a go and mold would, would form on these inner covers and has every year that we have kept them and so yeah I think that moisture even in the summertime can be a challenge uh, with our hives and and what disease does does it or, or issue does it propagate in our hives if we don't have enough propolis and how can we as beekeepers work to make the lives of our bees that much easier being from here um and as you appreciate you know the atlantic canadian region there's nowhere in the world like it but i think it's it's one of the few places that at the same time we have a challenge like we had this year with severe drought that we haven't seen in perhaps 50 years is what what they're saying and at the same time have to worry about moisture in our eyes um because that's that's how we live as beekeepers in this area um that that drought i know where i am in uh, and i'm keeping bees in northern nova scotia that was that was it was devastating to my bees this year and and honey production i don't know that we want to even get into that um how have you found things uh, with that drought in in pei this past season well you know dr byers we made the executive call my wife and i to leave our honey supers on through september really and i know a lot of people say oh andrew you should have taken them off and extracted the honey and it was just dry and it was really dry and i was nervous so we left them on and I can honestly tell you that about half of our honey, we, we halved our honey production compared to last year per hive. And I, I know that they, that they brought honey down. Um, I know that they sucked honey down from those supers. And hindsight says I probably should have pulled all the honey off at the end of, let's say, July, put my feeders on and fed them sugar syrup. That's hindsight. It's 2020. Um, I think I would have gotten more dollar for dollar for honey per pound 
than I would have for service or leader. So, you know, if we ever hit another 50 year drought, uh, that's what I would do differently. But I know that my hives were not as strong. We didn't do nearly as many splits this year as we uh, had in previous years, the last two summers. I was able to almost, Lord, you know, I increased by at least a third. And this year we did not, uh, we just couldn't do it. The Queens did not produce. I, I don't, I've never seen that sort of thing before, to be honest with you. And then in listening to other podcasts and following um, scientific beekeeping blogs, hearing uh, that drought is so devastating to a hive. And uh, I am concerned about going forward for the winter time as to what it'll look like coming out of that. So we fed heavily, at least 20 liters per hop was fed into them this year. I, I think as beekeepers, we need to be braced rather for these extreme weather conditions because I don't think you were in PEI in 2017, but that was our last drought we had. Um, and it wasn't as severe. Um, I think it was more widespread across uh, Atlantic Canada in 17, but it wasn't as severe as it was in, in those areas of northern Nova Scotia and across through, through PEI is what we saw this year. But, uh, you know, when they claim these are, these are 50 year events, uh, my thinking is perhaps we're going to see more often these, these extremes of weather, whether it's drought, cold, um, storms. Um, we saw the hurricane season this year with they were claiming record numbers of, of tropical storms and hurricanes. So I think, uh, you know, beekeepers need to be prepared for that. And I don't know if you feel the same. And if you're seeing people in your area thinking along those lines, we really need to sharpen up a little bit to make sure that our bees are, you know, particularly going into winter because the drought will affect how we get through winter. And then the, the, the fall storms and the, and the hurricanes certainly affect beekeeping directly. And, Everyone's out trapping and putting their, their large, heavy rocks on. But it, it, I think it's changed slightly how we need to think about beekeeping. I don't know what you feel on that. I would agree completely with you, Dr. Byers. Uh, you know, I'm speaking uh, at the Wild Blueberry Growers AGM about the challenges that beekeepers are facing and just observing the weather changes and how that's affecting agriculture, I don't think any farmer would, would disagree that things have changed. Uh, they've changed a lot in both of our lifetimes. And I think they're gonna continue to change. Uh, getting a little bit off topic, my history for work, I, I was a financial advisor when Shearson Lehman Brothers collapsed and all the way through 08, 09, 2010, you know, did about 15 years. And I remember that we had a discussion with a wholesaler who said, guys and, and gals, get ready. The deviations that we are used to seeing that would go for three to five year stretches in stock markets are now super compressed and get used to that. That's the new normal. That was the first time I ever heard that term, new normal, compressed and expect much larger deviations from what we're used to. And now you see that in the stock market, you know, four or 500 point swings. In 2007, 2008, people were horrified by those. And now in 2020, you go, ah, oh, the stock market moved two, 3%, no big deal. In the 80s, people would have, would have passed out when you told them that. And I think that also transfers over to weather, where you look at how our weather has swung. My goodness, we ran out of names for weather events this year, didn't we? Mm -hmm. They had to go into the, the Greek letters 
So I think as beekeepers, we need to get used to paying much more attention to our hives. I think the days of putting five honey supers on and leaving them in the field for three months without even looking at them, two months, whatever your number is, I think they're long gone. Uh, certainly this year for us, and you and I have spoken about this, having hives just die during the summertime for no reason uh, had me calling the Atlantic Tech transfer team asking questions. Am I the only one? Tell me I'm not because I don't know what happened. I think those weather events are going to continue and certainly they are here on Prince Edward Island. I, I think um, one of the things that's being considered more broadly um, you know, globally is, is summer loss. We've always concentrated on winter loss and we have, we have an excellent system now for collecting the data and reporting that back to beekeepers. So we know how we've done with our bees, getting them through the winter. But um, in a lot of areas now they're saying, okay, we need to talk about summer losses as well, because it's, it's, it's one of the big challenges. And I think being in beekeeping, we don't realize other livestock producers, if you were if you were to go into a beef producers meeting, for example, and say, what would you guys do if you lost half of your livestock every year, you know, or you lost 30% of your livestock every year, they yes. would, they would, they, I don't think they would have answers for you, but it's part, it's become part of beekeeping. But I do feel, and, and, and hopefully when, when you contacted us this summer about your problem, we reassured you that you weren't unique, that, that there was a problem with summer losses broadly this year. And, you know, it, it's very difficult enough in the case with beekeeping, you can't put your finger on one cause, but the drought would be a big factor this year in, in bees not taking off and uh, doing as well as what we'd normally expect. So um, I think we're in for an interesting ride with, with the changes that are going to occur. And, and it's not just weather. I mean, the changes we've all seen this year, um, unpredictable. No one, if someone had said to me and, you know, in a year from now, going back in time a year, you'll be in the middle of a global pandemic lockdown trying to, to beekeep and, do pollination services and, and produce honey. I, I think, you know, it's something out of, a, out of a bad science fiction movie. What effects have you seen on directly on the beekeeping industry with the COVID-19 pandemic this year? You know, on Prince Edward Island, and, and this is a big answer, so bear with me. We have a challenge with getting uh, workers who are willing to come down and be beekeepers. And, you know, you talk to anyone on the board, it, it probably fills half of our discussions. How do we find workers? And this year, there had been a big push, us working with government and the Department of Agriculture to get temporary foreign workers in to assist with that. You know, beekeepers who maybe live in a different hemisphere, uh, who can come in the off season, things like that. And unfortunately, that couldn't happen this year. So I know a lot of beekeepers struggled uh, with pollination. I know that they, they struggled to move their hives. I know that they still continue to struggle. And I think that we need to talk about this. Certainly it's something that I push at the association level. And this is why I encourage people to, to join the association so that we have uh, a shared understanding and can share best practices of the problems that we're facing. The blueberry growers are going to face problems if bees continue to suffer in this way. Hands down, nobody can argue that one. Pollination is going to suffer. You see the American Almond Board talk about it. Um, we just haven't been quite as vocal as they are, I imagine, because they just have so much more volume. But I think that if you're a farmer and you rely on bees, I think we need to work harder at working together and sharing the risk, if we can use that term, and understand that this new normal, that, that 
term that we've all coined through a pandemic, this new normal of having to work together needs to be a focus. We need to work better with growers as beekeepers. And I think growers would benefit greatly from working with their beekeepers, understand what's happening. I'll give you an example. Instead of just you know, expecting to have a beehive on the ground and that hive is going to pollinate, talk about the number of frames that are expected from your beekeeper. If you're expecting a six frame hive, I can deliver that much more predictably in the fall than I can an eight plus frame hive to be delivered in the spring. Does that kind of make sense what I mean by that? When the pollinators are requesting from beekeepers absolute numbers, it's very difficult for us to provide those in the going into winter. We know in the spring pretty much where we are. Um, so you're suggesting that you could offer a more accurate number of hives if they were talking about a six frame hive rather than an eight frame hive? And focusing more on the number of frames that we expect to have delivered, to be honest with you, uh, much as the American Almond Board has done with their pollination contracts, understand that maybe there needs to be a graded scale that happens where, look, I'll take a hundred six frame hives or I need 88 frame hives and I turn around and say, well, actually I've got 106 frames right now. Can we do that instead? You're still getting the same number of frames of bees under the definition of what a frame of bees is. But working with our, our beekeepers and blueberry growers together, as opposed to saying, well, you know, I just didn't get what I ordered or I need concrete numbers. It's very hard to give concrete numbers on Prince Edward Island when we have very few bees. But I don't think that the answer long-term is trucking bees across the country. Um, I don't have to be a genius to see trucks full of bees driving all across North America to do pollination and wonder just how stressful that is on the hives, how sustainable it is on the hives, and what's that going to do to our, our food production long-term. So those are a number of the challenges that I know are facing PEI beekeepers who are striving to produce a a quality product. We really want to push out a quality product to our growers and our partners. You alluded to the fact that, that the difficulty in getting the numbers of bees that, that are required for pollination in Prince Edward Island. Um, where, where are we right now with the numbers in PEI and where do you think that we need to be or perhaps would like to be in the future? With our discussions on the island, you know, th those numbers swing, as I'm sure that you are well aware. I know that we are short anywhere from three to 5,000 hives on Prince Edward Island. We need more beekeepers. Personally, I'd like to see more people own 50 hives than I would see two or three large producers come in. And it comes back to an insurance risk model, if, if you'll uh, bear with me for a second. It is much easier to truck in hives from Ontario where, you know, let's say they have 100,000 hives that they, can, that they can part with for pollination. No problem, you know, the swings there, anyway you slice it will still be covered. But when you talk about a 50% swing, even a 40% swing on Prince Edward Island, that's massive hive numbers. I would be much more comfortable with having a bunch of 50 hive beekeepers that have those hives uh, registered firstly. So we can all partake in uh, disease monitoring and helping each other out that way. And having those littered across Prince Edward Island, as opposed to concentrated packs of thousand hive bodies in, you know, stuck in one little hamlet, let's say. 
So from the association's point of view, we are working tirelessly to produce content with Adam. You guys have been great on coming up and, and supporting us to educate beekeepers and potential beekeepers on not only how to get into the industry, but also once you're in, what do you do? You know, you got all these bees and they're all buzzing at you. They're all looking at you. They're all pinging your veil and you got your gloves on, you got your hive tool, you've got your kit and you're outside in the field and you're keen to get going. And then you go, right, what am I looking at? So we would rather work with the, you know, new beekeepers and, and lots of them than one or two heavy players uh, that come in and could have devastating years. And then we're right back at the same place we were. Yes, it's an all your eggs in one basket situation, isn't it, with, with the fewer larger beekeepers. And I think that strategy has been recognized in other maritime provinces as, as also, uh, as you've described it, just to have that, that breadth of, of beekeepers across the, the province, but also in that some of those people will be quite happy and, and enjoy keeping their 50 or 100 hives. But then there will be a small number of those who are more ambitious in what they want for their numbers and they will grow to 200, 500 or, or beyond that. Um, so you have to have a pool of beekeepers to, to bring those, the, those larger ones out of, um, which I think I, I feel is quite important. There's a great enthusiasm for beekeeping um, in, in other parts of the, of the Maritimes and, and Nova Scotia particularly uh, has seen huge numbers in the, the, the people who are registering as beekeepers in the province. So um, is, that, is that phenomenon uh, matched in, in PEI with a, a lot of people uh, interested in becoming beekeepers? Yes, and even trickle down to political parties that are uh, keen on beekeepers and watching our minority government work with other parties across the house to focus on bees, of all things. I mean, who would have thought that that would be a uniting factor for this, this minority government that PEI has? where they talk about how, how can we all help bees? I mean, my, my goodness, this is fantastic for us as an association. And so we've been really thrilled to work with government on moving forward and becoming much more self-sustainable and having government commit to us as an association. And they have, that they would love to see less bees trucked across that bridge. So we need to be much more self-sustainable on Prince Edward Island. We need to work together uh, to learn from each other's mistakes. Come and learn from mine. Man, I am not perfect. I'm the first guy to agree that I would be happy to share knowledge and I want to get yours too because maybe you're doing a little thing that could help me out uh, that I'm not doing right now. And I'm not perfect. I don't think any beekeeper on PEI would tell you that they're perfect. And we all love learning from what we're doing. I bought a fogger online this year to do my oxalic acid treatments with it's a propane heated fogger it heats up the liquid and as it comes out this long oh, 18 inch uh brake line tube is what it is okay it fogs my hives i'm keen to use new technology that people say this works in in the southern united states for killing mites okay i'll give it a go and in fact i'm even lending out my fogger to other islanders who have bees to try and help them out to make sure that they get their treatments in as well. Interesting. Um, if, if you will, Andrew, perhaps we'll, we'll change topics slightly. And um, I, I know that 
recognize you as a beekeeper, certainly. Um, and now I found out that you were in the financial industry for 15 years, which was a surprise to me. But something else I know about you that our listeners would be interested in um, is another aspect to your background. And I'm going to introduce that by telling you something that I've been involved with peripherally um, that I think would be of interest to you. I spend quite a bit of time in New Brunswick and um, in and around Fredericton and in Gagetown, we have a, a very large military base. And a number of years ago, some of the soldiers there um, just wanted to get into beekeeping and through the local beekeeping community and, and groups and clubs around Fredericton, we all work together with, with the soldiers on the base to put a few beehives out there for them to work with. And they, they were hugely enthusiastic to start beekeeping on the, on the military base in Gagetown. And, and I haven't been in touch with them recently, but my, my understanding is that's continued. And I know you know why I'm telling you this, but I don't think our listeners know yet. So maybe that little bit of your background you'd like to add so everyone can understand why we started down this rabbit hole. Of course. Thank you, Dr. Byers. So, yes, um, in 1993, I became an army cadet and loved it. Um, I fell in love with playing bagpipes, of all things, uh, from a concert that we went and I saw the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders and who would eventually become the Queen's Piper, uh, Pipe Major Gavin, Gavin Stoddart. And we um, were a military family, historically. My, my family's all served and my father still does logistics with the Air Force. Um, I don't know exactly what he does, but that's mostly what it is, I, I can surmise. And yeah, now I am a reserve captain. I played my bagpipes with the Black Watch in Montreal. I was at university and then uh, did logistical support out west, uh, working at training centers out there. And now my office is at the Prince Edward Island Regiment, uh, where I actually run the local uh, cadet corps there, of all things. And so... I have a lot of friends at Veterans Affairs through the armed forces now who uh, think beekeeping is quite interesting. And there's, I've discovered through reading historical beekeeping articles and magazines on Facebook, there's some great pages for that, that after World War I and after World War II, beekeeping became uh, quite a big thing. I had no idea that veterans would come home and the Americans, I don't know about the Canadians, it wasn't written about so well, but the Americans certainly had big articles and, and magazines for, for veterans uh, about how to get into beekeeping and the benefits for them. And, you know, you see pictures of soldiers who are missing limbs and, and, and parts and still able to beekeep and fair enough, good, great for them, good enthusiasm. But them also talking about the shell-shocked individuals who we know some could be attributed to PTSD and the beneficial effects that they found uh, these doctors that would push these individuals to do beekeeping as a vocation and just, I guess, the romantic beauty of looking at someone whose life has obviously been very difficult, but finding solace in, in a beehive that, you know, they know is there and they, they can ground themselves to that. Um, I fully support and have been speaking with friends at Veterans Affairs about how can we get more beekeeping on the island uh, for veterans, what, what can we do? So it is a little pet project of mine that we've been talking about. And in fact, even um, some of the officers at the Prince Edward Island Regiment are beekeepers as well on their farms. Not a lot of hives, kind of like you and I had spoken about how PEI, many farms had beehives back in the day and it wasn't 
necessarily something that you advertised. It was just, well, yeah, I've got, you know, hives on my farm. And so seeing that still being alive here on Prince Edward Island um, makes me happy and gives me hope that we can get these 50 players with 50 beehives to come together to meet our pollination demand. I know that the beekeepers listening will not be surprised at all that there's an appreciation of the therapeutic side of beekeeping, which when we have time and we're not in a rush and we're in our in our apiaries, we, we certainly get the, the direct benefit of all of us. So um, yes, it sounds like a great initiative. And perhaps Andrew, maybe that's something we can talk again about with some of the other people that are involved mm. in, that, in PEI. But um, for today, I'd just like to thank you for your time and um, we can um, continue this conversation uh, and down the road at some point. So thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Dr. Byers. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you for all the hard work that you and your team at Ada do to support beekeepers. We recognize that and we love that we get hard science back to support us as we continue down our path. So thank you and your team for all of your support. You've been listening to What's the Buzz with Ada Beekeeping Podcasts with me, Andrew Byers, your host, and my guest for today, Andrew McFarlane. If you'd like to contact Andrew, he'd be happy for you to do that, and he can be reached by his email, which is andrew at pollinatepei.com. That's andrew at p-o-l-l-i-n-a-t-e-p-e-i.com. Your What's the Buzz with Ada Beekeeping podcast is brought to you by your Atlantic Tech Transfer team for apiculture and perennia food and agriculture. We would like to thank Rachel Oxner and Patty Ryan for production and editing, and we would like to thank you, our listeners. For more information on beekeeping in our region, visit our blog, www.atabuzz.com, and find us on Twitter. Atta at Atlantic Bee.